0: Welcome to the 329th of The COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk with Deborah Straley, an expert in the history of end of life and death care. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 26, 2021, there are 4,466,841 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Rather than continuing to read so many of the national-level COVID death numbers, which strike me now as inaccurate and a not good way. To visualize the suffering of the disaster, I'm going to continue raising different COVID measures I'd like to know more about. And I've thrown that invitation open and like to continue to. If you have COVID metrics that you think are not being captured, send them to me at US of Disaster or email me. This one comes from Twitter user at Baba Lilith. Her question is How many people have COVID and don't get tested or go to a doctor? either asymptomatic or mild cases, or they're too poor to seek care, so they're not included in the stats at all. Another COVID measure we should be tracking. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is "Gwyn Oak Funeral Director, Carlton Douglas Treatment of the Dead Brings Comfort to the Living. This was written by Clara Longo de Fritas and appeared in The Baltimore Sun, August 24th, 2021. As an elementary school student, Carlton Douglas had a firm grasp on what he wanted to be when he grew up. While most kids wanted to be a scientist, a veterinarian or an athlete, he wanted to take a different road. I want to be an undertaker, he said. What? His teacher and classmates would respond, if not confused, at least surprised. But some of those long ago classmates who became decades long friends of Douglas will say that he is the only person they know who ended up pursuing exactly what they said they would as a child. The funeral director and owner of Carlton C. Douglas Funeral Services in the Gwyn Oak area. Has been in the business for almost 50 years with clients from Baltimore, the state of Maryland, and beyond. In early August, he was named Professional of the Year by the National Funeral Directors and Morticians Association, a historically black association founded in 1924. Funeral Services is one of the oldest black businesses in the country, said Douglas, who is a member of the association and was the Maryland State Chapter President for 10 years. Black funeral directors started the association because they were not invited to existing organizations. His fascination with funeral services began with his grandmother, who raised a young Douglas in Sparrows Point, Baltimore neighborhood, in the 1950s. When she attended funerals for her neighbors, she would bring him with her. At the church and the funeral home, Douglas would marvel as the impeccably dressed funeral directors smoothly conducted the service. After attending the University of Maryland Eastern Shore to study sociology, Douglas left for New York City in the American Academy McAllister Institute of Funeral Service, a school for morticians and mortuary science. After graduating in 1970, he worked at a Manhattan funeral home before returning to Baltimore, where he learned how to interact with grieving families. Courtesy and understanding others' pain is essential, he said. In Baltimore, he did his apprenticeship with two funeral homes, Herbert E. Nutter and Vernon R. Bailey, where he learned how to be a funeral director and learned the embalming process with funeral directors Lamont Thompson and Joseph H. Brown. In his almost 50 years in Baltimore, Douglas has overseen funerals with the help of other directors for his mother, father, his two sisters, and several friends. While it was difficult, it had to be done, he said. His loved ones would have wanted no one else but him to conduct their funerals, he said. You learn that mortality is inevitably going to happen, Douglas said. You just have to prepare yourself. And as a person who believes in God, you just know that hopefully when you pass away, you're going to a better life. In April of 2020, as the effects of the pandemic began to increase, Douglas told The Sun business hadn't spiked yet, but that it was just beginning. Over a year later, he couldn't say how many people he embalmed or how many funerals he conducted, but there were a lot more. Than pre-pandemic years, many due to COVID-19. After he receives a call from a family, Douglas sets up an appointment with them to discuss the person. He asks the family how they would like the person to look. He will often borrow a portrait of them to ensure the person who died looks like themselves. The pandemic meant Douglas needed to take extra safety precautions, such as using face coverings and personal protective equipment when embalming, he said. But the biggest toll was on the families, he said, who faced restrictions on how long the service could be and how many people could attend. During his career, Douglas said he assisted and conducted the services of several soul and jazz musicians, including David Ruffin, one of the lead singers of The Temptations, jazz vibraphonist Lionel Hampton, and the Queen of Soul herself, Aretha Franklin. Douglas is also a lifelong civil rights and community activist. He's currently an executive committee member of Baltimore chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. He expresses his activism through his radio shows, the Carlton C. Douglas show on WFBR and the Frank L. Conaway Sr. et al. show on WOLB with noted civil rights attorney Dwight Pettit. The Frank L. Conaway Sr. et al. show focuses on black businesses in Baltimore City historically black colleges and universities, presidential state and local elections and social issues. He's very well liked, very well respected, very well accepted, Pettit said. And I think through the radio show and his success as a businessman, he's one of the leaders in the black community of Baltimore City. This past year, four of Mary Livingston's family members died, including her mother and brother. She insisted Douglas prepare the bodies and conduct the services due to his professionalism and compassion, she said. Douglas goes above and beyond to ensure, the person she lo- to ensure the person she lost looks as if nothing had ever happened to them, Livingston said. I always say Carlton will never, ever be a millionaire, she said. He will never own a mansion, but you know what? I'm sure there's a mansion in the sky waiting for him. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Deborah Straley. Deborah Straley is a historian of medicine, technology, and care in American life. She's pursuing a PhD in history at Yale University. Current research investigates alternative end of life, life and death care since 1960. Deborah Straley, thanks so much for joining me on COVID Calls.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: So I'd like to start the way I generally do. Just find out where you're calling in from and what the situation is there in terms of COVID.
1: Sure. So I'm calling in from New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, we're in the red zone here, which means more than you know, 15 cases per 100,000. Um, that is to say, transmission's really high. June and July were looking pretty good um, after the vaccines went into full effect for me and my partner. We went to an indoors wedding, which was the big outing of this past 18 months. Um, otherwise, I think I see a lot of people around still, you know, we have mass mandates uh, in effect. Um, a lot of people still doing curbside things. Uh, we personally don't really go anywhere because we have a baby, but, um, yeah, I think we're lucky to be in the Northeast, but um, cases are still rising.
0: And what's the situation at Yale? Students are back.
1: Students are, I guess, yeah, filtering back now. Yeah, uh, you know, I feel so disconnected because it's been virtual for so long. Um, students are coming back. They ha- We are in person, um, and masks are required testing is required for unvaccinated folks but um, students have been students staff and faculty I believe all three groups are required to have um, vaccines
0: I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a a memory of this pandemic time something that really sticks for you I and I know I keep saying this it's not an impossible task but I'm trying to get every (laughs) guest um, to share one, just to, to try to document these these moments that are sticking in our minds?
1: Mm, it is a great question. Um, what comes to mind for me is, so before COVID-19 rose to the level of a pa- pandemic, I uh, had a student in my class. So this was January 2020. <clears throat> I was teaching, you know, in person as one used to do. Um, and the student was an international student, Chinese, and he was coming to my office hours telling me, how this new virus was affecting his parents in his neighborhood back home. And it was, it was chilling to hear about like the elaborate disinfection systems his parents had come up with whenever they re-entered their home. Um, and he was he was terrified for his one of his parents is a frontline, I think a physician. And yeah, so he was coming and talking to me about this, and also on top of all of that, about his inability to go home and be with his family. And he had no idea when he'd be able to see them again. And, you know, of course I sympathized with him, but I absolutely didn't grasp what what lay ahead for the world. Um, and we we kept meeting the student and I in my office hours, which turned virtual very quickly. Um, and as, the, as COVID, you know, spread across the United States and we saw the, you know, ensuing political response unfolding in the U.S. Um, you know, he was devastated to see that the U.S. had some warning, but some like time to prepare better policies, but um, wasn't. And he was just enraged and also coupled with that was just justifiably anxious about being a recipient of a hate crime. Um, he was, you know, tracking this rise in crimes and in anti-Asian rhetoric. So it was a uh, quite a journey to be meeting with this student over this this uh, beginning of the pandemic unfolding.
0: Are you still in the in touch with the student?
1: We haven't uh, we haven't caught up in a while. We we mm-hmm. I saw him a couple times over that summer, but yeah, I should should check back yeah. in.
0: What a premonition of things to come and, and particularly appreciate your, your point there that that even, you know, talking to someone who's experiencing that like face to face, it still felt somehow distant at that time. And I, I really relate to that. Reading news articles from January, I can go back and think, wow, that's a terrible thing that's happening in Asia.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So um, you also had a baby during this time?
1: Yes, I did. Maybe you can hear him. I don't know. <laughs>
0: it's it's, it's just great. I love it. It's it's, just it's a wonderful. The yeah, yeah. Just outside the outside the yeah. studio. Um, yeah, yeah. What was that experience like in the midst of COVID protocols and everything else?
1: Um, bizarre and really, I was having. I've been having such a dissonant experience of like intense joy, um, but also like despair. And uh, what complicated, what complicated things were? Um, so I was pregnant basically the duration, like the from the very beginning of the pandemic, um, and then I had my baby in August of 2020. So he just turned one. Um, I was stranded in India when uh, lockdown happened there in March of 2020, and uh, it was such a struggle to get back to the U.S. Mm. And uh, then I re-entered my housing situation. was I was living cooperatively with 11 other people. And it was just such a struggle. We were in just in constant conversations about how to best um, protect our community's health, knowing that our house itself was going to be at a higher risk. Um, being pregnant during that time was really stressful. <laughs> um, now we know what the risks are like for pregnant people, that it's an elevated risk. At the time, it just wasn't, it wasn't clear. Um, so it's been a bizarre experience. I know it, it. It's been a source of real anxiety. I was watching the news daily to see, and, and talking to the my health providers daily to see if I would have to be in labor alone. Um, mm. Yeah, it was really frightening. Uh, and it's you know since then has been uh, again a source of joy being with my son all the time. But the lack of childcare, which in the U.S. is generally a problem, um, accessible childcare, but COVID has you know, uh, shut down a lot of child care centers. And it's been, yeah, we've had this uh, very small family unit. I've since moved out of that communal living situation. So it's just been me, my partner and my baby. And yeah, I have no idea what parenting looks like for other people. So we're just, you know, going at it alone here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, am, I feel really, really fortunate to have my son during this time. It's been uh, a great source of of happiness and fun and pleasure, which I know is not how many people, how most people are describing this this period of time.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that and congratulations. And uh, it's uh, important, I think, to be able to talk about joy in this time as well as despair, as you said, having both of those things, excuse me. Um, I wonder who were you able to turn to for trusted information in those sort of critical moments when it was not so clear if it was safe to go into a clinical environment or, or how to get postnatal care and those kinds of things. I've talked with several people on COVID calls who are experts in this area, both in, in psychology and mental health support, but also doctors. And I've gotten a lot of different kinds of answers about how they communicated with patients.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was in touch with my midwives. I also, you know, I study the history of medicine and public health. And uh, so I that has put me in contact with practitioners. So I was reaching out to them to ask about the latest stuff. I mean, I was um, certainly in a privileged position when it comes to cutting edge research and access to what's going on. I have friends who are doctors who are teachers at Yale School of Medicine who are researchers. So I really, you know, turned to as many people as I could um, and also worked on disseminating that information um, through my housemates, through my contacts. Um, but it it wasn't significantly different from what other people had access to through the CDC. So you know I continued to continue to um, revisit the CDC's um, ongoing uh, reports on research.
0: Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Deborah Straley today. Deborah, let's turn to some discussion of the work that you're doing, and and I think starting by talking about your dissertation project on death care activism. Take us into this project, I think, um, just defining some some terms, even like alternative death care, understanding um, what death care activism is. Set the stage for us.
1: Sure. So, as you said, my dissertation explores um, alternative death care in American life since roughly 1960. Um, I think when we think about <clears throat> the 1960s in the US, it's sort of cliche to describe American life as turbulent, but um, I'm arguing that there's um, some turbulence around how people think about and carry out, you know, death and dying uh, processes. So, um, I think there were events going on in the 60s that sort of initiated radical changes in in how people died, where they died, um, what happened to their bodies, and the rituals and and meaning that people brought to um, end of life, end of life care, death preparation, um, memorialization. Uh, and, And I'm really interested in what I've been calling kind of death care activism. And this is really a broad term. That reflects historical actors who are responding to dissatisfaction with the kind of care that they are receiving or their loved ones are receiving at the end of life, and the kind of care they were seeing um, or expected to receive um, in death. And so, to add some just some texture to what I mean by that, so you had activists founding and staffing um, AIDS-specific hospices um, when they were faced with exclusionary criteria from mainstream hosp- mainstream hospices. Um, hospices were really expanding in the 1980s. Um, but as uh, you know, AIDS appeared on the horizon, uh, it became a means of excluding people from accessing uh, hospice care, which really itself was a kind of death care activism that revolutionized at the time. Now hospice is you know more mainstream, but at the time it was a really revolutionary um, form of care that um, expanded from just treating a patient to treating their whole family. So seeing seeing a person in their larger relational context, um, that itself was a I think a kind of activism. Um, what you were describing <coughs> in your opening story, excuse me, um, about a funeral director who's also an activist. Um, We see a lot of, in in history, um, civil rights funeral directors efforts. um, I think that's a kind of death care activism. So their efforts to lend not only their technical expertise to um, working with traumatized bodies, um, but working with um, using their material wealth to fight white supremacy. So um, there's examples of white vigilantes who are trying to pursue um, black leaders and uh, funeral directors um, assisting them by sheltering them in the funeral home and then facilitating mm-hmm. their escape in hearses. Um, so kind of using all of the tools of their trade to um, support the community much more broadly. Um, yeah and I could I could go on and on but well, um, I,
0: yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad that you, you pointed that out. I didn't know you know I, I found the story of Carlton Douglas Fascinating and important, and buried way down in the story was his role as an activist. And I'm glad you, of course, picked up on that because that must be something you're tracking in the in the dissertation as well. Does it become a forum for for civil rights? I mean, in the 1960s, you actually. There are a lot of Carlton Douglases out there who are sort of taking a lead in the civil rights movement in, in part, I guess, because of the reach that they have in the community and the trust
1: they have in the community. That's a, Yeah, that's a great um, great speculation on your part. And I think that's true. Um, the real expert here is Suzanne Smith, who's written a whole book about this called To Serve the Living. Mm. Um, but from, from what I've uh, gathered from her and from other sources is that um, when you think about the kinds of economic discrimination uh, common towards, uh, black Americans, um, funeral directors were, that, that was one profession that was, um, sort of exclusively, it was, it was a profession where black Americans could, um, ascend to, um, higher income status. And, uh, be, and because of that, they became leaders in, the, in their communities. Obviously I'm speaking really broadly here, so excuse that. Um, but yeah, and then also having a, a, a funeral home becomes a center that can be used for multiple purposes for community meetings, for um, kind of out of the eye of uh, white community members who might be um, looking for, to police um, activist gatherings. Um, so it is, it's really interesting to see how um, funeral directors were active in the civil rights movement um, and, and lent a lot of support to the movement.
0: So you were telling us about the, this term that you're developing, death care activism, and there's also this concept of alternative death care. So is that the sort of the origin of, of hospice? Is that what what you're referring to there? Are there other kinds of alternative death care practices that you're tracking in the work?
1: There are other forms of alternative um, death practices. So Uh, You know, these are terms that are somewhat fluid as I as I figure out what most accurately describes the history. But um, what I first was looking at was was prior to hospice, looking at these funeral and memorial societies, um, these these groups of people kind of grassroots efforts to identify, you know, what funeral homes are charging in in your community, what. Are cremations available? What does body donation look like? Um, and these people were compiling that information and putting it into um, you know, information packets, manuals, and circulating it to people who were joining these, these societies. Um, and the purpose was to make funerals simple and affordable. So this is happening in the nineteen late 1950s and 60s um, in response to the funeral industry's um, monopolization of what death should look like, what death care should look like. Um, the cost of funerals was 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 exorbitant. Um, you had, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Jessica Mitford's book, um, The American Way of Death, but um, there was this moment where she kind of exposed the whole funeral industry as um, essentially it's a business and people are trying to increase the bottom line. Um, so there was a lot of um, alternative death care that spun out as a response to that. Um, and there's a really, I think, a rightful place for kind of this traditional uh, funeral, which by that I mean an open casket with an embalmed body um, presided over by a funeral director coordinated who coordinates with the family and the place, you know, the wherever the person died. I think there's a, a real place for that, but alternatives start to crop up alongside that and certainly have been around for a lot longer um, also, but so the, the funeral and memorial societies start to, to build um, up. They still exist today. Um, there's um, also a lot of different, uh, more recent stuff going on in, in the, the late 90s, uh, 2000s, and, you know, today where they're looking at alternative dispositions. So eco-friendly burials, natural burial, direct cremation, shooting your ashes into space, very, putting them in the sea to, to generate new life, Um, for coral reefs, all of that kind of fits under this umbrella of alternative death care.
0: Just thinking about this period of time you're starting to also starting with in the 1960s, I guess it was, I mean, that's a a sort of return of a more open immigration policy in the United States as well. I'm curious about the degree to which um, funerary practices of different ethnic groups um, you know, is there tension around that? And I, I've never thought about this, this question. And so, it's, so if it's not an area you're working on, um, I'd be curious to hear your, your speculation if you had any, but I'm, I'm curious what kind of pressure there is for immigrants to somehow comport themselves to what is like an American style of burial, particularly you're talking about these
1: um,
0: kind of dominant practices, which almost feel monopolistic by the time period that you're that you're focusing on.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a really smart insight. Uh, I don't know as much about it, but I know that um, funeral th- there was pressure in the other direction from the funeral industry to be able to serve these new communities mm. um, like the Hmong community, like learning to um, you know how to accommodate various um, religious and um, spiritual, and uh, different worldwide traditions um, as different immigrant groups came to the US in greater numbers. Um, So that's definitely was a a pressure that funeral directors are responding to. And there's some correspondence about that in the the literature circulated uh, Hmm. the publications between funeral directors, Um, but a pressure to be like, you know, the, you know, all things to all people in order to build up your, your clientele.
0: So, what role did Vietnam, did the Vietnam War, play uh, in your dissertation? And what role does it play more generally in maybe Americans shifting practices of death care?
1: That's a great question, one that I'm still actively answering. But okay. when you ask <laughs> when you ask about the Vietnam War and death care activism, um, I know there's a lot more to discover there. But the angle I've been looking at is looking at the policy, the military policies about um, death care and, and looking at those policies as kind of the paragon of, of death care in, in the U.S. So I'm using using analyzing those military materials to discern like the characteristics of dominant forms of death care. Um, I think the benefit of looking at the Vietnam War um, is that death care in the context of an international war is it's hard to carry out um, you know you're in battlefields. You're in. Uh, you're not on American soil. You don't have the logistical connections, the infrastructure of death care that's necessary to bury or otherwise um, dispose of human remains. So because of those pressures, uh, those pressures, and obviously the general stressors of war. Um, The military policies have to be really they're really explicit about what kind of counts as dignified care and what doesn't. So obviously having family come to identify the body is not possible, not uh, not something they're going to try to do, but tagging every possible piece of paper or um, object found on a dead soldier's body is really important. So this idea of property emerges as personal property emerges as really important. Um, You see paperwork is really important. So um, the military, the US military is certainly known for its bureaucracy. Um, That is certainly true around end of life and death. Um, I think there are like seven to 10 different forms for each soldier's death. Um, yeah, and then like rapidly trying to identify them. There's a lot of anxiety over identification uh, and personal property. And there are, you know, many other things that are emerging here. Embalming was important, um, not only because it is a uh, has become an American tradition since the late 19th, early 20th century, but um, because of the uh, climate in Vietnam. Um, if you're aiming for any kind of bodily preservation, you have to act very quickly. Um, so trying to import all of the the, um, the chemicals and the tools necessary for embalming, these airlifting, these massive refrigerators. Um, yeah, so there's kind of an uh, uh, an imperial notion of what, you know, death should look like no matter where you are in the world. It has a certain um, a certain procedure. So that's what I'm using that uh, my investigation of the Vietnam War is to look at um, what dignity looks like, um, according oh. to the military. Um, and then what follows in my research is, is um, challenges to various elements of that um, dominant um, method of after death care, um, which also carries through to end of life care. I'm
0: um. I'm really glad you're working on this. I, I mean, it's such a fascinating area and one that I, mean, I have so many questions. Like, for example, so you're working with um, this, a military case, a, a case of war, which I'm only guessing is is partially because there's so many good sources there to work with. But maybe that's not a good assumption. I mean, what, what do you have to work with in terms of telling that story, just the one that you were telling us right now?
1: Yeah, so I'm working with some... Uh, I spent a lot of time at um, in the National Archives, and and just astounded by the number of documents. And um, you know, for a while, I was like, "What do? How do I make sense of this?" There's so many numbers. Do I like work with a, you know, someone who's like a statistician or someone who knows clearly? I know nothing about numbers. Somebody, some numbers person who can help me kind of quantify this information. And then I took a step back and and was like. I think the thing to say here is that like, what what does it mean that these numbers, like that there were so many numbers? And by that, just to give you an example, um, every, so part of the like infrastructure of death care was to have different collecting points spread throughout um, the areas that the US was in, in Vietnam. So when soldiers died, wherever they, they were killed, um, their bodies would be airlifted or moved by, um, by vehicle to a collecting point where they would have this sort of initial processing and then they would be taken to one of eventually two mortuaries um, and then they would be processed and then processing meant, you know, figuring out their belongings and and so on and so forth and then eventually shipping them home um, where they would then be reunited with their families. Um, Now I've lost track of what I was answering. Uh, Oh, the Uh, sources. So, so um, each collecting point would have a daily a daily total of deaths who died what their nationality was how their where their where their remains went next and that would where their belongings went um, that would be weekly totals monthly totals and then there'd be sort of this report generated and so for each collecting point there's like fifteen I don't remember exactly off the top of my head you just have massive amounts of information. You know, week after week, month after month, year after year, um, that speak to the importance of tallying. Um, and so in addition to those numerical resources, I also have, um, luckily we have memoirs from, um, you know, veterans who have served not only just, you know, as soldiers who experienced their, um, fellow soldiers dying, but, um, people who actually worked directly in, um, memorial affairs um graves registration the name the name changed over times but but people who were doing the work who were doing the embalming who were coordinating the after-death care of soldiers so that speaks to that personal experience of what it was actually like to be doing doing that kind of work and then hoping to do some oral history interviews as well,
0: well listening to you describe this problem of quantities uh I, you know, I've been very resistant to the war metaphor for COVID uh, because I felt earlier in the pandemic, particularly because I felt like it it's it gets mobilized um, in ways that um, that I don't like, frankly, uh, that, you know, puts power in certain places and damp dampens down our concern um, for things that we should be worried about. However, I'd say what you're describing um here, I, I feel like people are have been struggling with in terms of the death counts, just first of all, just finding out how many deaths there have been from COVID. Um, and then reporting those in a regular way and, and the metabolism of death speeding up so rapidly in certain areas, and putting this tremendous pressure on the entire system is something that I think, you know, it's been it's being documented, but I feel like this is a major story of, of this COVID era that's not receiving the kind of attention it should. I think you're in a very unique position to tell us um, what we can expect uh, in terms of how people have grappled with death, but particularly the institutions that have to grapple um, with death care. So I, with that, maybe in the foreground, I wonder what have you been tracking? I mean, historians are always in this situation where they've got their cases and you're, you're tracking cases in the 60s and, and through the 80s and beyond. And then you've got the front page of the newspaper every day. What resonances and, and what sorts of things around death care with COVID have been, um, have you been keeping track of?
1: From the very beginning, people have been sending me things uh, and saying, this makes me think of your work. And I have just put those all in a like Gmail folder and have never looked at them because it's been really hard <laughs> to like write about this extremely traumatic uh, war and be living through something that is not a war but feels the descriptions are really similar. Um, so it's actually been very hard for me to draw those connections uh because it's like too close you know what I mean uh and I'm so speaking from such a fortunate position of distance uh and safety and you know security um but that is something that I'm going to have to to wrestle with at some point um there are like you know there are a million different (laughs) connections that I'm sure you're already making just even formulating that question for me um, but I've been, yeah, it's been a struggle to to want to think about what's going on today in terms of what was what I what my research is about, which raises lots of philosophical questions about what it means to be a historian.
0: Do you think that um, funeral practices, you know, are we living through a time right now that's it's dynamic in terms of funeral practices, or uh, do you think that there will be some sort of snapback to the way? things were uh, in 2019. And there've been a lot of changes. I think the number number one has been distance, the need for for families to be distant um, during that time. But there've been many others described as well.
1: Yeah, I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a hospice social worker, and we were kind of debating what is different about this period of time, like what effect COVID has had on people's expectations, people's practices, beyond the obvious restrictions and not being able to see your um, loved ones, which is just horrific. Um, But I think we've sort of, in our uh, limited experiences, have sort of come to this tentative conclusion um, that people are generally resistant to talking about death and dying. And the pandemic has not change that because um, you could think that one way one effect of having death um, so close at hand uh, is to bring it out in the open and make it something that we could be more comfortable talking about maybe comfortable is not the right word but um conversant in but i think instead we're seeing uh at least uh the same thing we've seen before which is that there's growing, growing um, efforts to get people to talk more about death and dying. You have kind of this death awareness movement that you know began in the late '60s, early '70s, is kind of experiencing a resurgence. Have this talk around, um, you know, climate-friendly, so to speak, um, eco-friendly burials and disposition. Uh, but overall, I'm not sure that that has really shifted how people are thinking about death and dying. Uh, and, and I do think that the pandemic has made people even less interested in talking about death and dying. That being said, I'm uh, a little out of touch because I've been caring for a child for the past year. But um, so, and I also think we're right in the middle of it. Like, I think it's hard to say mm. how how this is gonna change. Um, I mean, you've been talking to many, many experts. I'm curious what your what your insights are.
0: Uh, on on that point, it's the distance aspect is an interesting one. I mean, terrible one, but it's of interest. And it's it makes me think about your case you were talking about in terms of, of uh, AIDS, people who died of AIDS, and the problems that families face to be close to them at end of life. And I guess I guess early in the AIDS epidemic as well, I was talking with Adia Benton yesterday about Ebola sufferers in West Africa and the pressure that it put. Uh, on traditional funeral practices where um, people couldn't be close to the body and the funeral traditions of moving the body from place to place and inviting a lot of people to participate and even lay on hands, um, which just had to be completely obliterated because of Ebola. And, uh, you know, I think AIDS is slightly different, but we're in the same, you know, sort of discussion there around a really jarring shift in the proximity that people can have to a loved one as they die and then and then after, and and COVID has um, COVID has put you know a lot more people than you would usually think in the United States in that position, sort of all at once.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think you know my sense again, it's limited, is that this is just people are waiting, waiting until they can do things normally again, and many people are not waiting. Um, I mean, personally, the one funeral, thankfully. Well, yeah, one funeral I attended virtually um, was really surreal uh, and felt totally not, did not, you know, I'm still waiting for the kind of closure I think I would have gotten from an in-person funeral. And, uh, you know, I hate to assume everyone's in the same boat, but I'm curious to see what kinds of innovations around commemoration are going to stick around uh, as things someday return to some kind of normalcy.
0: Pulling on that Vietnam era example maybe is useful as well. I mean, it was a common for families whose loved ones um, died in Vietnam and were brought home. Then a funeral was an expected thing to happen and it happened at government expense. So there you would have some distance between time of death um, and embalming and then uh, a funeral which occurs, you know, at some at, at some remove, both in distance from where the person died, but also in, in time. It's fascinating to me to, to see, and I read a lot of obituaries, and there's a good percentage of them, just as you know, where it says, you know, funeral services will be held at a time when it's safer to hold them. But some of those obituaries mm-hmm. are like from 2020. So, like, yeah. how long are people holding on? I don't know if that, you know, again, working across time is imperfect, but I, I find some some echoes there.
1: Absolutely, no. That's really insightful. Uh, I mean, we'll just certainly have to wait and see. I think what's interesting about Vietnam era is that that was the first war in which soldiers were returned home so quickly. Um, prior to that, there was, you know, this part of the Quartermaster Corps was um, Graves Registration. That was the title of people who were in charge of any kind of death related activities, and their job was to go and. Mark the grave, the temporary graves uh, where American soldiers were buried, um, so that later they could be exhumed and returned home. So Vietnam, you have this um, very rapid, in some ways, return home. So I think that it's hard to say what came first: like families' expectations of being able to have their loved one home sooner, or if you know the military sort of motivated that as an expectation. I imagine families certainly. Um, would want that. Um, But that does have a, that does have a a history that desire and expectation for that to be realized has a history. Um, The other thing I was thinking is, yeah, there was always a big backlog too. Um, And this was something that plagued memorial affairs, um, specialists, military morticians, Um, the dead rolled in way, way faster and in huge numbers more than than these specialists could handle and they were there was always a backlog there were storage issues and there was this i think underlying it was this urgency to return these people to their families um and that uh, was very haunting you know according to the memoirs, sources that i looked at it was very haunting for people to be working around the clock to try to to get this person person's body back home um yeah, so that, that, that worry about increasing the distance um, geographically, but also time-wise was uh, very urgent then.
0: It, it's Again, it's not something, as you pointed earlier, it's not something that usually is written about much in the news. It's not some cultural stigma against these kind of discussions in the United States are um, hard for me to understand. Uh, maybe during wartime, it's also suppressed um to a certain degree, by the military that doesn't want focus on that. And I think about the return uh, of soldiers uh, to the uh, Air Force Base in Delaware and the sort of question about whether or not the president should actually be there when um, soldiers' bodies are returned. I mean these are are discussions in American life, but um, boy, they're almost nowhere to be found compared to, you know, discussions of battlefield, Heroics. One small example, I mean, I used to commute in and out of Philadelphia for 20 years and and lived in Philadelphia for many of those years. And Philadelphia 30th Street Station is a a remarkable rail station in America, one of the few remaining. And um, I was stunned, I don't know why, but I was stunned when I discovered that there was a space in that station that had been used as a temporary mortuary throughout World War II Mm. because they were moving so many of the dead soldiers. Um, up and down the East coast by rail as they returned them to their families. And I, it's just had never, and it's, there's no marker. There's no nut, no, there's nothing, but it's such an important part of the story of that building and the function that it served in American life and Philadelphia's life, but it's just nowhere to be found. And, and I guess it provokes, and what I want to ask you is, is also about sort of memorialization in this regard. And so, mm-hmm. you know, how does that factor in the, the, the function of long-term memory of death care? Is it mostly just forgotten and passed away? It exists only in these mortuaries, it exists only in Carlton Douglas's funeral parlor and, and that's what you get as the sort of memorial of, of this very important practice?
1: Mm, that's such a good question. Uh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is where where is the, the mass memorialization for COVID? I don't know if I use use the term victim, but people who've died from COVID related reasons, I feel like we don't see, I haven't seen the kind of massive memorialization projects that we see with AIDS, for example, like the AIDS quilt, just to take one of many, many rich uh, memorials. So, and I'm curious to know, you know, I haven't looked into this, but I'm curious to you know if that's if that's a global thing, if that's really particular to the United States um, and, and why that might be. Uh, a friend of mine speculated that it's because we're, <laughs> Americans are good with an acute crisis, but not with a long-term one, which is interesting, but doesn't explain, you know, when you take the AIDS pandemic as an example, it doesn't really explain the lack Um given that they're both ongoing uh, pandemics. Um, that's a really great question. I think also when you, I going to say, when you dig around, but that's probably a pretty bad uh, pun at the moment. But uh, speaking with family members, speaking with elders in our communities, there are stories, um, it doesn't take that much to uncover stories about um, what death and dying was like. And, um, you know, like cooling boards, I was just reading about cooling boards, where the body would be placed. Uh, and ice would be placed underneath of it that there's really hard to to find hard to find images of and yet these were household items um, that are different of course from like intentionally crafted memorial items but um, are interesting nonetheless and would be interesting if we looked at the the daily tools and and um, the techniques of care and thought about those as as carrying on a tradition themselves. Um, One thing that's arisen that's I think speaks to Americans many Americans craving for some kind of ritual an added ritual at the end of life is the rise of um, what are called end of life doulas or death doulas sometimes they're called death midwives um, I don't know if you've heard about them at all but they're um, they're semi-professionals who either volunteer or are hired um, to provide companionship at the end of life for someone who is perhaps facing a terminal diagnosis. Sometimes they're hired well before someone has any kind of um, definition around what their death might look like, Um, not only to help people sort through what they want their affairs, how they want their affairs to be sorted out after they die, but to help them during life to sort through philosophical and spiritual issues to help them, you know, identify what do they want in their medical care at the end of life? What do they want in their? Um, how do they want to be remembered? What kind of legacy projects could they work on? Um, and I think it's worth mentioning that they're bringing a kind of ritual, but um, that, that kind of ritual and support. Um, it has long existed in indigenous and black Cultures in the US, and you see, I think, uh, a certain segment of death dualists uh, appropriating those traditions. And I think that whole phenomenon really speaks to um, the persistence of a way of thinking about death and dying domin- in, in the dominant culture in the US that um, it is not relational. You know, it doesn't, it, it's really discreet. It takes every individual as, okay, they're gone, that's it. Um, so I think you're seeing an emergence of it. Of a need for uh, a more connected, uh, a, a worldview that looks at end of life and death as continuous with life, as um, related to the earth, as interconnected with all people and and all living things. So that's something I'm seeing um, emerge in various in various um, areas of my research that you know is worth thinking about more too.
0: Wow, that's that's really fascinating, and I, I note, um, you know, for example, Atul Gawande's book, um, which I think is not the only one, but and maybe there's a literature, a larger, uh, lo- more longstanding literature there. I'm not aware of, but sort of trying again to bring death into conversations for families, so that people aren't just faced with a with um, a complete lack of knowledge of what their loved one wanted. Um, uh, is as they're dying or or after. So the abruptness is somehow, you know, doesn't cause additional stress. I don't know, is that is that something that's you're you're describing a continuity here, which is quite fascinating in indigenous and black communities, which then kind of gets discovered maybe by an industry uh, or creates mm-hmm. an industry mm-hmm. in America. I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, if that continuity is acknowledged, that's important but it does seem like such a crucial function. And I know Gawande's book was very widely shared and read.
1: I think there's, uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure how to come down around it ultimately, but I do think there's some really egregious stuff going on, but I think there's, um, you know, to take, for example, uh, the idea of planning your funeral and, filling out uh, planning your end of life care, you know, filling out an advanced directive or a living will. um, There's sort of an obsession with paperwork that uh, I think makes some people feel better, but ultimately those things on the whole are lost or they're not followed or not fully filled out or they don't apply or they're not enforced. Um, So I think that's an, an interesting, an interesting, um, How do I say perversion is a word that's too strong, but it's sort of twisting of this idea of planning and embracing the end of life and that continuity that ends up getting bureaucratized in a way that doesn't ultimately change anything that might be worrisome about end of life care um, and doesn't ultimately um, make it better for the person who's going to die. Um, So, yeah, so I think you see mixed things. I think there's really great work being done in this area by the Collective for Radical Death Studies. Um, they're working on collecting, you know, organizing book clubs around decolonizing death and radicalizing death and really trying to make explicit how many of the dominant um, death care and, and end-of-life care practices in the U.S. are uh, founded and continue, you know, support white supremacy. Um, and i found their work. And you know, my work is very much indebted to their work. Um, and uh, it's a great place to look if you're interested in learning more about um, these movements to decolonize death and radicalize death.
0: Okay, I'm I'm going to put that uh, in the comments here so people can find that and follow up on that. The Radical dot com, uh, a resource that my guest Deborah Straley, has been using. In her own work we're almost up on time this is a question that um i i wanted to ask you at the beginning and then we got off and running and talking about other things but um but I, i'm thinking again about carlton douglas and and what i read at the top and then the many sort of people we've talked about even just now the sort of interlocutors the the people who have thought a lot about death or dealt with death a lot and serve families um and you're now adjacent to them. You're an expert in this, in this area. Um, I don't know if you identify that way, but um, how did you? How are you drawn to this topic? How were you drawn to this topic? And I guess also, you know, my, my question connected that is is do you see some responsibility now as an expert in this in this area? And I think particularly in this time, in this moment, which so many people are grasping. To understand both as a sort of point of fact, like what's happening right now in terms of death, but also the, in the broader sense, like what will it mean to American culture? You have a really important role to play.
1: Well, thanks. Now I feel really stressed out about it.
0: No, it's it's it shouldn't stress <laughs> no, you. No. It, it should empower you to finish the dissertation and and, <laughs> and be and be out there because we need we need the work. We need you.
1: No, I I think that's really, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. And um, I definitely feel living through this pandemic, uniquely positioned to do this work and um, to help people understand like what, what we're doing and why, what makes us feel some kind of closure or understanding or ability to cope with or not cope with as is appropriate in many cases with death and dying. Um, I got into this work. um, I was Earlier in my career, I was a uh, a labor and postpartum doula. So I was um, a someone who accompanied and educated people around pregnancy and birth and postpartum. And uh, I found as I was doing that work that it was, so I, I studied philosophy as an undergrad. So I'm, I'm always having these like big, big questions um, bumping around in my brain. And I found it was hard for me to understand how to approach beginning of life without some way of understanding how to approach the end of life and those things felt more and more connected and there were so many patterns in the kinds of medical care and interactions people were um, on the receiving end of uh, at the beginning and the end of life and so I actually entered my graduate studies planning to continue you know gaining expertise in reproductive health and the history of reproductive health I wanted to know how did we end up this way. Um, and I just found myself more and more drawn to the end of life. And I think there are so many parallels. Um, and that what I'm what I'm learning is like at the root of this, I think what drives a lot of the alternative death care practices, um, and death care activism is a, a recognition of relationality, that like things are connected in ways that um, that dominant white culture, uh, you know, negates on a daily basis to, I think, everyone's all living creatures detriment. Um, and so I'm trying to trace that history through my work. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, ultimately where I'm going with it. Um, yeah, so that's how I got there. And uh, I certainly, I, I didn't come in expecting to be uh, to continue on in academia. And I that's still my plan is to not um, become a professor, and so I'm hoping to work directly with people to kind of bridge that to become a resource for people who don't have expert knowledge or don't know how to you know, metabolize all that's happened in American history and um, how to make sense of that in their their daily decisions.
0: Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can catch COVID calls weekdays at six p.m. Eastern time. Be sure to join me for my next COVID calls on Monday when I'll be talking with the anthropologist Peter Redfield. And you'll definitely want to join me for that. And I want to thank my guest today, Deborah Straley, uh, for a wide ranging conversation and for sharing your experience of, um, you know, uh, birth uh, and then your research in death. And um, I think it's phenomenal work and I wish you every, every luck, every bit of luck as you're, as you're moving towards finishing the dissertation. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me and, and for your kind words, thank you.
0: Stay healthy everyone, we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.